Paul. All right, I think I have shown up. I think you have. I have arrived. I think we were, we had a table for two, and I think both parties are here and ready to be seated. I love it. I love it. Get the garçon uh, over here. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize this about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in- instance of wanting to run towards it. Our guest today on Great Minds is the venerable Paul Venables. Uh, and uh, thanks so much for doing this, Paul. Really great to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. But I, I'm mistaken. You said Great Minds. I thought this show was great foreheads because I'm packing a, you know, a five-finger job here, a little land, a little landing strip. So I didn't know. I'm You're hanging stop in there I... pretty good. Right. I don't know. I see. I think in the uh, follicular department, you are still hanging in there. <laughs> So uh, there's a word you didn't yeah, think you'd hear today, right? Exactly. So let's start in an unexpected place. Okay. And I want to go back to Carvel store <laughs> num- number 1587 in Stratford, Connecticut. How did you dig this up? You are good. Take us back there, Paul. Okay. <laughs> this is Tom Carvel. He sells ice cream and franchises. He also does his own commercials. He doesn't trust anybody else to do them. Walk in, nervous first job. In fact, I got the job right around when I got my driver's license. And like the second or third day I showed up, I was a nervous wreck from driving there. Boss was a hard ass, rode me. I came home many a night telling my dad, I don't think I have any common sense. (laughs) Because I kept hearing, you don't have any common sense. Undaunted and more daring, Tom Carvel now has a new commercial which features him singing, sort of. Now we make ice cream. Carvel. Yeah, we make it fresh. Every way at Carvel. But eventually won him over, worked my ass off, put my put myself through college uh, with jobs. And this was a big one. Uh, certainly the summers were busy at a Carvel store making Fudgy the Whale and Cookie Puss, these legends you may you may recall. Absolutely. Um, the uh, the Santa mold is the same as the fudgy the whale mold. Just to spoil your uh, your perceptions of the cake, the ice cream. That's an exclusive right here. You heard that here first. That's, that's never right. been revealed. That's that's yeah. I've just broken that wide open. Um, and so, uh, but I eventually rose up and he made me assistant manager. And then the, he sold the place, and a new owner came in who was a lovely Indian guy that we got along great, and you know I was thriving. But I was a, a 16, 17, I think I was left at last half of 16, 17, a manager, key to the store, doing the you know counting the money at the end of the night, friends storing their beer in the walk-in cooler. You know it was a really it was a prosperous time for all of us, um, and I learned so much from you know mopping the floors where kids had peed out front to being responsible for, you know, the actual building, the facility and the, and the, and the nightly take um, and having that responsibility, I really flourished with it. And I thought it was my first job at learning how to lead people. Cause I, now I had people my own age, sometimes my friends that got hired and I had to manage them and I was accountable for them and I had to do it in a way where they didn't hate me. And, and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Carvel store number one, five, eight, seven. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I lament, did your kids work or not work? Oh, gosh, not only they work like crazy. 
And we've cut deals where they were going to pay back a percentage of their college education because the value, the character building aspect of paying for your own education. Now we had it lucky. My, my, I went to UConn university of Connecticut for 3000 sure. a semester or whatever it was. Now it was like 1500 a semester. It was like 3000 a year. Uh, they don't have that luxury uh, educational systems screwed and, uh, and out of control. Um, that's a different subject, but uh, yeah, no, they've always worked. They've always worked, saved their own money, bought their own things, their own vacations. We really, really press that upon them. Yeah. I think that's so important that, and you learn so much that stays with you, you know, forever from yeah. those experiences in your teens. Yep. You know, I, I, we share something. I, I also was in the ice cream game. Uh, when <laughs> Don't I was tell six. me Baskin Robbins. <laughs> no, no, no. You won't guess this one. Um, when I was the same age as you, when you were managing store 1587, um, I had my own chipwitch cart. Oh, wow. And That's awesome. I used to sell chipwitches on the streets of Manhattan. Good. Wow. And I'll tell you, you want to learn, yeah. you know, an education the street, working on the street in New York, that yep. that teaches you an awful lot. So my grandfather, an Englishman, mm -hmm. uh, sold tea on the streets of New York in a cart. Did he? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's the real Aberdeen proving ground. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so you went to UConn, uh, studied marketing. Actually, funny little side note, I was only, I was in the business school only because I, I was writing, I did a lot of journalism in high school. One of my mentors was my journalism teacher. I wanted to write. I wanted to take a lot of English, but I could. I'm like a lang foreign language uh, idiot. Uh, I have foreign language dyslexia. I don't know what I have. I'm an idiot. My kids speak multiple languages. My wife does. I'm an idiot. So I chose the business school much harder to get into because the requirements for, um, you know, for the uh, for the foreign language requirement were much less, uh, and so I didn't have to take foreign language. So I'm in the business school, but now I'm miserable. I'm going to blow my brains out. And then I take one and then even marketing, I thought was complete BS. I thought marketing was just like, you know, new terms for common sense stuff. You know, if you charge more in price, that may affect the demand of the, okay, you know, thanks. Um, I took one course in advertising, old crotchy professor. He wasn't very good. He was an old hack. And he said, advertising is the rock and roll of the corporate world. And I was like, I'm in. That I can do. Wow. <laughs> but but it was primarily an avoidance strategy, which it was I a complete understand. Complete avoidance strategy. <laughs> yeah, which I I understand and respect. Yeah. Um, now going back, looking at that uh, time of your life, and I'm seeing you have a phenomenal uh, portrait of Martin Luther King right behind you that you yeah. shared was painted by Joan Baez, which is right. incredible. That's great. Who were the figures at that time who were the some of the great minds when you were you know in your sort of formative years when you had that rock and roll moment about your future career who were some of the great minds that really influenced you so what you used to do of course folks that listen to this are going to be shocked to learn it was before the internet and the advent of googling things or even watching other people's video there was no real way to do that you studied i studied a lot of people studied the one show book and the one show book was this thick, you know, four inch thick volume of great work for the past year. And you would kind of, you would learn your craft by, by looking at that book and seeing how people worked language and visual and interplay between the two and scripts, et cetera. And two names really stood out to me. Tom Thomas was a writer of, and Gotti Thomas Hedge, he had his own agency at one point, got merged into oblivion like they all do, but he had such 
he he was not you know it wasn't about being overly pithy a lot of his lines were like two sentence jobbers i'll give you an example that i happen to remember you know for wild turkey which was a kind of a shitty bourbon yeah. but they elevated yep. it right and he yep. said there you know there are less expensive bourbons there are there are also smaller uh, cars and thinner steaks <laughs> this idea that you know just those kinds of things and they he excited the heck out of me i never met him but he he influenced me for sure Another guy was Ed McCabe from Scally McCabe Sloves, New York legend. And same thing, studied his work, a lot of Volvo work, a lot of things over the years, a lot of car business work. The public, it seems, is in love with hardtops. At Volvo, we're not, because hardtops don't hold up. Every Volvo has six steel pillars, like this. Each one is strong enough to support the weight of the entire car. And you also come from a big family. I think you were the sixth of seven kids. Yes, you're good with your work. You, you do your bang. Your dossier is good. And you're known, your reputation is that you're a guy who has strong opinions. Yeah. I'm, Did that come from, you know, fighting to be heard, being in part of such a big family? I think a couple of factors. One, with seven kids, um, the parents couldn't be on everything. So two things happened with that. One is I had six other teachers. Well, five, because five were older than me. I guess I learned from my younger brother as well. So you had these other points of view and teachers. So you pick things from pick and choose from different people, viewpoints, ways of doing things, ways of seeing the world, and less direct parental, parental supervision, which allows you to grow as a person and allows you to become who you are because you're not being, you're not under some microscope all the time. And so I developed my own thoughts and feelings. And then in addition, in a big, loud family, you do, you're correct, be heard. You had to get in there and you had to say something of value and they had to be strong with your opinions and your convictions. You had to have the courage of your convictions to just kind of survive. Um, but like it was, it was a, I, I think back on those days and it was a zoo, but it was a beautiful zoo, you know? We didn't, so there's not a photo of me as a baby. There's not a photo of me until I'm about three years old. And I've asked my mom about this. It's like, mom, no baby photos? Come on. It's like when kids are their cutest from zero to three. And she's like, uh, yeah, we just didn't have a camera those years. It was broken. <laughs> That's it. Okay. We already had we already had six <laughs> other kids worth of baby photos. Who needs any more baby photos? We, right. Just right. use your brothers. <laughs> right. Great stuff. Close enough. Right? <laughs> All right. So you want to make your way out in the world and you get your first job, I think, as a receptionist. Yeah, and that was a score because I, you know, you graduate from UConn. I had this phenomenal uh, grade point average. I really applied myself in college because I was paying for it. It was that investment idea. And then uh, go down and train in. I'm living about an hour outside, hour and a half outside of New York, a train in. And all the big agencies start with the secretarial pool. And it was not called executive assistant. We're talking secretaries and secretarial pool. And you had to type. So we took typing tests. So I have failed and then kicked out of Every major agency at the time in New York City, including NWA and J. Walter Thompson and Ogilvy and Mather and BBDO and all the rest at YNR, all kicked me out because I couldn't type fast enough. And then one ad was for receptionists. And I was like, well, any idiot can answer the phone. That I can do. That's got my name on it. <laughs> so I got that job. And they knew I wanted to be a writer. I was trying to take classes at the School of Visual Arts at night, put a book together, trying to, trying to make my way there. And eventually they came to me and they said, you know, we know you want to be a writer, but we also know you hate being on the phone. So what if you be an account person? We have an opening for an account coordinator. I said, I'll take it. And so that liberated me. But again, not only being the receptionist and seeing everything at an agency, but being an account, a low level account side person really 
helped me see the whole world of marketing, advertising, interact with all the departments, and it just made me better creative eventually. Um, so that was a that was a fun business went out. They went out of business pretty quickly too. <laughs> uh, uh, unrelated to the yeah, uh, elevation, <laughs> of, yeah, of course. Right, I got gotcha. So I know you worked at McCaffrey and McCall, but you also worked after that for a guy who I knew pretty well uh, and really love, which was Alan Kay at oh, Corey yeah. Kay. Alan Kay, yes, yes. That was those were like the salad days. I was trapped at this place trying to get a job as a writer, Tish Communications, which went out of business. And McCaffrey McCall was my first writer job and spent probably too much time there trying to improve my book. And I finally got my chance. Corey Kay is known as a creative agency, a small shop. I get thrown in there and that was a little hotbed, a crucible of creative greatness and energy. Some of those people went on to do great things. Um, and a wonderful group, and we were in it together, and we worked our asses off, and worked all night. We worked on Comedy Central. We would work until midnight, fax them. They lived, They were uptown. We were downtown. We would fax them ideas in the morning and then get the feedback by noon that it was all dead, and we had to start again. And again, we'd do a whole, like three more campaigns from, from that point until midnight and then fax them again in the morning. <laughs> it was like a boot camp. But real talented people. Neil Linewall was a creative director there. Alan Kay, obviously, was the... The head of it, uh, a very gracious, uh, knowledgeable, uh, charming man, and uh, they let me do. They let me go. They just like cut a hole through the through the chain link fence and said, "Run!" And so I just took on as much responsibility and did as much as I possibly could. They elevated me to like an associate creative director, and those were and it was a short time. It's like eighteen months, fifteen months. Did a bunch of work. Some of it was for Comedy Central. Jeff Goodby called me out of the blue. Hey, we saw you stuff you did for Comedy Central. It's kind of funny. You should come out here. I was like, okay. <laughs> right, right. That's, a, that's Jeff, all right. Yeah, <laughs> Alan was is sort of uh, not remembered as uh, by as many as I would think should remember him. You know, based on who he was. And he did that one of his many campaigns, which the MTA still uses today. Oh, is that Some talk. If, if, yeah, and if you see something, say something. Say something, yeah, the safety yeah, stuff. Yeah, that was Alan's line. And yeah. many years later, I had met him because my first job, I worked in the mayor's office for Ed Koch. Oh, cool. And Alan was sort of the favored guy when the Koch administration needed something. Gotcha. Ed had a, a guy named Herb Rickman, who I, I don't think is around anymore. He was sort of his de facto chief of staff. Right, right. And Herb had real flair, was always yeah. wearing a great suit and, you know, always looked good and good haircut. And I met Alan through him. And uh, and years later, I called Alan. We were doing a dinner at the Wynn. And Steve Wynn was one of his clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I said, Alan, could you tell Steve we're doing this? And if he's around, um, see if he would stop by and say hello. And this is obviously before Steve, you know, fell from grace. Yeah. And he walked in the room. There must have been 200 people and didn't say anything. And there was one small, you know, not grand door into this particular room where the dinner was being held at the Wynn Hotel. And within seconds, no one said anything. Within seconds, the room got quiet. (laughs) And he had that aura about him. Yeah. And I always uh, was very grateful to Alan because whatever I was trying to do at the time, you know, he helped. Excellent. And uh, a lovely guy. So then you end up going uh, from there and you get this call from Jeff Goodby. 
Yeah. My only interaction with mayors of New York was I was invited. I got a ticket, a hand-me-down ticket to a Mayor Dinkins uh, big dinner and I got food poisoning. So that's my, you know, mayoral that's, uh, exposure. That's memorable. Yeah. It's yeah. it stuck with me. Um, yeah. I was poisoned by, uh, by the Reverend Al Sharpton once. So we see, share that. And, yeah. Uh, you know, we share that. Big dinners. Uh, avoid the mayonnaise. Um yeah, Jeff could be amazing. So this is this is true as well. My wife and I married in New York, thinking about starting a family. Did that thing we have a one bedroom. We had the door open to the closet and and sure. seriously going. We could fit a crib in here. This isn't so bad. We'll paint it. It'll be nice. <laughs> like the kind of logic, New York City logic. Um, and she says to me, she says, well, we've always talked that one other city we'd live in San Francisco. Why don't you put your book together, send it to Jeff Goodby, and at least you'll know. Am I good enough for a good beer or am I not? They were the hottest agency in the world by far at the time. <clears throat> 95, this is about. And so I have back then FedEx, big box with laminated uh, print ads and a big, you know, thick three-quarter inch television reel, you know, this old school stuff. And it's sitting in my living room with the FedEx label on it, made out to Jeff Goodby. And I'm going to take it to the office on the way in, you know, in the next day or two. And before I do, I get a call from Jeff Goodby saying, we saw some work in an award show you did for Comedy Central. Thought it was interesting. Why don't you come out here and check it out? So I never even sent my book. I carried it. Wow. And that's, uh, that's real serendipity. That's serendipity. And it was one of those, you know, yes, when yes is yes. And it's like, there's no doubt. Uh, we hit it off. And that run was phenomenal. I learned so much. Like New York's at the time, New York City advertising and marketing, very different from West Coast. Now people are just, you know, so bi-coastal by nature anyway. And, and I think it's pretty much a big hodgepodge and a beautiful mess, which is good. But at the time, New York was very packaged goods and account guy focused and, you know, a little bit of, you know, we got to bamboozle the client to get anything good through, you know, San Francisco, Jeff Goodby stood in front of clients and saying, I don't know what we should do. Maybe we should, you know, ask some consumers to, to, to do some testing and see. And I was like, what do you mean? You're not giving them a stump speech on why they have to do, you know, it was just this, honest here we have the ideas we have confidence we can keep coming up with ideas and we'll do the right thing for you and it was different it was just a different tone i learned a ton that could be servicing partners and and something you and jeff share and i guess you were there about six years before you started your own shop is that fierce determination and embrace of independence yeah, it matters. I mean, now I look at our agency, it's been, it's almost 20 years. It's like 19 years. We can't be the kinds of people we are. We can't be the kind of leaders. We can't be the kind of uh, consigliaries to our clients. It, it, I think it, if we're not independent, in my opinion, I think it gets compromised. You, when you start, when you start looking at, you know, the shareholder, which by, you know, fiduciary responsibility is to shareholders. It's different than that client sitting across from you or their consumer. And uh, I really have felt that has allowed us to be freer and tell the emperor when they're naked, you know, and not only that point and say, you probably should get that mole looked at, you know, um, it just helps. Now that said, I've talked to every holding company. I have tried to be gracious. I've tried to always listen and, you know, I would never rule it out, but it is, it is right now. It's independence is a, is a defining piece of who we are and what we do and why we do it. So it's been an invaluable home. So go back now. We're almost 20 years in, as you said. Go back. What was the genesis of the start of the agency? At what point did you say, okay, you know, it's time for me to, you know, fly the coop and stand on my own two feet? So I actually thought I was going to stay at Goodby forever at one point. 
And I think the story goes, the partners was only like five or six at the time had a vote. And I think it was five out of six said Venables should be the partner, next partner and go. I had already been annoyed with Steve, anointed with Steve Simpson as handling all the creative responsibilities. So for the first time in their careers, Jeff and Rich took creative director, director off their titles and had given it to Steve Simpson and I. So we were running it. And I thought, this is it, Shangri-La, I'm in. This is, I love it. I love the culture, I love the people, I love what we stand for, the work we do. And then I didn't get that partnership that year. And they said, yeah, next year we're going to vote again. It's going to be a slam dunk. Don't worry about it. But in between, I got an old client reach out. And she couldn't go to Good because of a conflict. And we were having beers in LA after a shoot. And she was, you know, are you serious? You would quit your, quit your dream job and open an agency for my account. And I was like, are you serious? You're going to fire that big West Coast agency that you have right now and just give it to an unknown, unproven upstart? Are you serious? Are you serious? We're drinking the whole time back in my drinking days <laughs> and thought this is never going to happen. And then Monday morning I woke up, I was like, I wonder if this isn't sure enough it happened. <laughs> and then it put it in motion. And and it was, you know, and then, you know, I managed to leave with a, with a really, it started as a handshake deal with Jeff and Rich. And then it grew into a little bit more of a concrete deal where we were going to be connected. They were going to help us. They, they were interested in, 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 in our success. They let us use their editorial services and we had access to their CFO for advice and we used their focus group rooms. And there was a, there was a great relationship business that they, they couldn't handle. It was conflict they'd send our way. It was a beautiful symbiotic thing. They were really wonderful paternal uh, influences, uh, both Jeff and Rich as in those early days. And it was 01, which was right after the dot-com meltdown. That's March. Everybody closes shop in San Francisco. They all moved in like the gold rush. June, we open. September 9-11 hits, the whole world goes into a tailspin. So it was, we, we, know, the val- we know the value of a dollar and an honest day's work because we, we, that's how we started. <laughs> but you had one client and that's enough yeah. to open the doors. Yep, and it was. Yeah, Microsoft Ultimate TV. And we knew it was only going to last about eight or 10 months. They, the, the guy hiring us, the, the woman and, and her boss said, this, there's going to be a merger. We might sell this division off. You got about 18 mo- eight months, 10 months. Can you do it? And I was like, yeah, we're going. How big is the shop now? Gosh, you know, what, what do we measure on? We used to measure on billings. I don't think we don't use those numbers anymore. Um, we're, you know, vacillates anywhere between 160 to 190 people. We're still one office focused, although we have people working across the country, particularly for Audi, as we have people in the field for, for that piece of business on the retail side. Um, you know, we've done things overseas. We had a Shanghai thing going that was a, like an 18 month. Um, we knew it was going to, you know, it was a project based thing was going to last 18 months. So we're flexible. We'll go where we need to go and, and set up where we need to set up. But you've grown the thing over 20 years to, you know, a pretty healthy size shop. Did you think back then that you would be sitting here where you are now, 20 years later? Uh, that's a great, uh, that's a great story. Um, I always had a gut. I always had a gut that I was going to do this. I was going to open my own agency. In fact, it was only I could be when I buried that thought. Um, if we get into the story, how I met my wife, there's an interesting little nugget in there about this idea. But I always suspected and wanted and thought, I'm going to have my own agency someday. And I don't even know why I thought that. Maybe it's just the entrepreneurial bug. I didn't even identify it as such. It just was there. Um, I, c- I couldn't imagine the clients, the people, the 
success, the fun that you can't imagine. That is just like pinch myself every damn day. I come through the elevator doors or, you know, I log in on zoom. <laughs> Not right, <with> exactly. <laughs> I pinch myself. I'm, it's, I'm so blessed and lucky to work with these people to, to help shape this culture, to, to attract the right people, to do the kind of work we want to do and to, and to solve clients problems. And yeah. well, you also get to bet on yourself on a daily basis. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And there are times when, you know, there's two ways to go and the decision is like, well, the real financial prudent thing is to lay off a bunch of people, et cetera, or we bet on ourselves and we see where we go. And we've almost always chosen, not that we haven't had layoffs over the years at times you have to, but um, we've almost, when there's a choice, we've almost always chosen to bet on ourselves uh, and it's worked out. It's worked out. That's great. All right. Well, you asked uh, my next question. So let's talk about how you met your wife. <laughs> so uh, back to Stratford, Connecticut. Uh training in as a receptionist. Okay. I am so damn excited to take the 6 a.m. train into New York, into the big apple, right? Uh, greenhorn, wet behind the ears, excited, right? Just I'm brimming with the, the optimism of, a, of, a, of the city. And it's 6 a.m. And I meet a girl I know from high school on the platform. I start talking her ear off. We sit in the train cars and the, I'm talking and telling jokes and, you know, my excitement is running high. And this woman across the way keeps looking at me. Now, you got to imagine this train car. This train car is old men, almost exclusively old men, wearing Burberry trench coats, either sipping coffee, reading the journal, or asleep. That's, that's the entire extent of the, the car. And this one younger woman is kind of looking at me. And, of course, as a, what, 23-year-old guy, I'm thinking, she digs me. Well, come to come to find out later, it was actually this freaking guy won't shut up. I'm trying to get some sleep. <laughs> That's why she was shooting me glances. But, you know, <clears throat> whatever. That's, you know, <laughs> it's how you read them. Right. So anyway, eventually, though, she catches one of these jokes or whatever I'm telling. And I see her smile. And I was like, oh, this this is great. At 6 a.m. I'm working my my game. Um, no, I didn't have game. Believe me. Uh, but I was uh, I was interested. And so people on the train, you've been on the Metro North train. It gets to Harlem, 125th Street, 125th Street. Everybody stands up. You still got like 15 minutes, but you're in the tunnel. You're underground. You got like 15 minutes, but everybody stands up. Whatever. We all stand up. Sure enough, the train comes to an abrupt, abrupt halt at Grand Central. We literally collide. I make a comment. She makes something. I make a joke. We start talking. We have a conversation that follows that's about Oh, it's like, hey, what car, what train do you take home? The 534. Oh, maybe we could meet. Yeah, that'd be nice. What about the fourth car from the back? Okay, I'll meet you on the five. Except she is working in the Helmsley building, so she knows a shortcut down on the ground. I go up the ramp with the, with the salmon, with the throngs, right? The lemmings. We're going up the ramp. The Burberry Sea is moving up the ramp. By the end of this conversation, I'm a full story above her, hanging over the railing. Okay, I'll meet you on the 534 and the fourth car from the back. And these old guys are coming by in the Burberry coat, smacking me on the back, going, ah, that a boy. Go get her, son. <laughs> oh my God. Right. I'm busy here. Thanks. <laughs> And then sure enough, I almost missed that train, uh, but I made it the last second. And then we just were commuting buddies for the longest time, which is a really nice way to start a relationship. And in that time, I tell her, I'm going to have my own agency someday. I'm a receptionist commuting in, living with my mom, and I'm a seller. I'm going to have my own agency someday. And she not only believes me, she marries me, um, which, you know, what a catch for her at the time. Uh, and <laughs> she's hung in, and 30 years later, we are going strong and actually couldn't be better and uh, but but she believed in you and it sounds like it sounds like you believed in you 
Yeah. You know, I always had like an unfounded confidence. Um, I think part of that growing up and having to provide, you relied on yourself. Like I had to rely on myself for so much. And I'm not saying I was neglected or anything. I had beautiful, loving parents, but just the size of the household, you, you know, if there was soft, if there was baseball practice, no one was reminding you, you had to get on your bike and go to baseball practice. Like you, you owned it. Um, and I, so I think that, I think, uh, yeah, I had a, had a confidence that I can, if I got a shot, I, I can work hard, you know, and I'll get it done. My dad instilled in me a lot of like work hard ethics. You know, he used to say he was a machinist in a factory and he worked and he was eventually general manager, but he said, you know, if I lost my job tomorrow, I could always dig ditches. You know, he had confidence he could provide by just putting his back into it. And I think I've always had that. I've just put my back into it and something good will happen mentality. Fantastic. And what was that like when you first moved out to San Francisco? What do you remember from, you know, where'd you live? How'd you find a place to live? I mean, you guys as a married couple were pretty young. Yeah. Well, what happened was my wife switched careers during, during our marriage and she was in PR and quit and had a, she had a higher paying job than I had and went and get her education, a master's in education at Bank Street College up in, uh, in the Columbia area. And so she had to finish her master's. So we were four months apart. So I stayed with one of Jeff Goodby's old buddies. It was ridiculous. <laughs> the middle of the night, going to the bathroom and seeing a naked guy walk by kind of moments, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know, oh, whatever, but you, you make it work. You know, they couldn't, I guess they supplied corporate housing to a point and then four months is too long. So they, <laughs> I was living with this dude. Good guy. I joined a softball team. We were hanging out, <laughs> making it, making it work. But I moved to North Beach because of for one reason, coming from New York, I lived on lower, you know, Fifth Avenue, 16th Street, pedestrian traffic. I needed to be able to walk to my dry cleaner, my pizza place, my local bar. I got to be able to walk. And so the pedestrian life of North Beach attracted me and the food, of course, pretty great. So that's where we started. And then a year, year or so in, uh, we had a kid. And then uh, that was a whole traumatic thing. She was premature and early by three months and no current complications, but a pretty dire situation at the time. And then we ended up moving out to the, we looked all over the city and weren't happy with what the options were. And the realtor finally just said, why don't you go check Marin? And we like bought the third house we saw. <laughs> One of the things that we don't talk about too much um, and not for any reason is the work. Mm -hmm. And you have done some tremendous work. I remember a couple years ago, I think it was 2017, the Super Bowl for Audi. Yep, yep. What do I tell my daughter? Do I tell her that her grandpa's worth more than her grandma? That her dad is worth more than her mom? Do I tell her that despite her education, her drive, her skills, her intelligence. She will automatically be valued as less than every man she ever meets. Or maybe I'll be able to tell her something different. But you've had some, you know, amazing, amazing creative come out of your shop. When you, you know, start putting that 20 anniversary highlights reel together, <laughs> what's, what's going to be on that reel? That's hysterical. Well, the first spot that we really ever did, we did a really quickie down and dirty favor for my, my ultimate TV, but I remember we did it and Greg Bell was still at the agency at the time. And he said, that's an instant classic. That'll always be a classic. It was a little number we call Pever. 
where a guy is taking you through how to deal with your wife when she's emotionally upset. You pause your program, you empathize, you validate, and then you resume. Ben has a serious problem. His wife speaks to him. I am so upset. You but then he got Ultimate TV, and because it's always recording live TV, he can use P-E-V-R. He pauses the program, empathizes, validates, you had a hard day, and resumes. Ben has unleashed digitally recorded television. You are the sexiest man in the world right now. Uh, so Pepper was an instant classic. Then we did some work for HBO that would definitely be on there. We did campaigns for every single uh show they had they release on dvd and we did all the work for that oz particularly we did some amazing work for that uh i know you're i think um my homework says you're friends with larry david i had a funny little i had two funny little larry david things one was uh <laughs> we did a whole work we basically watched the ser series and then came up with like if you were to uh kind of extrapolate a larry david's you know guide to life based on these episodes what what would that guide look like so that was the marketing and he literally told us it was too funny. He said, I want my marketing to be straight ahead. You know, just name of the show, my face. I don't want to do this funny thing. And he said, it's funny, but he wouldn't give us the, ah! <laughs> okay. So, okay. But that, that's a badge of achievement. A badge of achievement. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other one was an, at the Ivy in LA and the most beautiful day in the world with no one in the restaurant and all the windows by the, by the ocean open. He insisted the server take him to the back room to sit in a little tiny corner that I only saw him there after I went to the bathroom and there was no light and it was dark. And I was like, of course, Larry David wanted that seat. So that work, um, Barclays was an early account that we did really great smart work for in the financial category, which is tricky. In times like these, you need an experienced partner to look out for you. Heads up. And after 300 years, we've gotten pretty good at that. And it grew into Barclays UK wanted to make it more of a presence in America. They bought the Westchester Classic in your neck of the woods, the sure. golf tournament. And then they did a bunch of ads on the golf tournament that we did that I think there's a couple of them in there that are um, pretty awesome. They, they still hold up. You know, we, 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 we um, usually would work with the top directors and that sort of thing and just had fun on that account. The Audi work over the years, it's a whole history. We did Orville Redenbacher. We did some funny classics. Google, there's a couple of funny Intel, we reinvented Intel twice um, with some work that I think holds up uh, really well. eBay, we did, we modernized eBay. They were dead in the water, you know, auction brand, used stuff from your, you know, some dude's garage and modernized them and, and, and featured their app. We made the decision to only market their app and, and new stuff and, uh, that, that changed their trajectory at the time. Um, yeah, Chipotle now we're in the middle of this, you know, a wonderful run and turnaround. Uh, we got them when their stock was hurting and they had issues and, and now they're on a tear, absolute tear. Uh, yeah, we work for 3M now we do some really good. Yeah. There's a, there's so many, which Reebok too is another one. We just want a piece of business from Reebok. There's so much stuff that it would be fun to sort through, I think. <laughs> well, the 20th anniversary is the perfect chance. Yeah, you're right. Was there something that you went forward with that you didn't feel, I'm not so sure about this one, but let's see what happens. And it took off like gangbusters. Yeah, I think, I think I was shocked on that eBay work, how well it repositioned that company. They had so much baggage. Um, and 
all the metrics went through the roof and the online and actual, you know, they attracted more sellers as well as buyers and more merchandise was moved through the site, et cetera. What's the one present you want more than anything else? Get the hottest new toys at the Toys R Us store on eBay. When it's on your mind, it's on eBay. That was that was impressive. And it was comedy, you know, which I think this world is missing a little bit of these days. You know, obviously, the circumstances are hard to be funny in, but hopefully that will change and we'll lighten up as a nation because we could use it. Um, <laughs> I think, um, you know, over the years, we did these iShares campaigns. That That's one that we truly were talking to smart advisors so we weren't even talking to consumers. That stuff blew up way bigger than we ever imagined. That led a change in the way America invests its money into ETFs, which were unheard of, confusing uh, vehicles, financial vehicles at the time. And we slowly over a year, you know, two or three year campaign, then it took off and then we wrote it. And it was, you know, it went from the category didn't have any money invested in it to that particular line of funds became like the third largest fund family of any kind ETFs or mutual funds are, you know, up there with Vanguard and fidelity and unbelievable success. And of course they sold it. Then we were done with that. Right. right. <laughs> success gets you in this business too, That's, you know, <laughs> happens to all of us. So it's become very popular and not just in this, you know, COVID-19 era, but overall, um, to talk about, you know, the future of the agency business. And yep. uh, I think if you were to say overall, half glass empty, half glass full, you've got a lot of folks these days talking about the agency business, whether it's the big holding companies or the smaller boutique shops seeing the glass half empty. Yeah, I don't believe that. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think, you know, the common thread for those that are successful, large or small or in between, is that they have great people yeah. who are passionate and committed about what they do and deliver on the promise of what your professor at, you know, UConn <laughs> told you way back when. What's your view? It's, it's interesting because... I see the holding companies and they might be a little bit locked in how, you know, their growth basically becomes acquisition game. How you know, they got to keep that up. How many things are there left to buy? I don't know. Um, they're a little bit, maybe more lumbering and hard to pivot. The small guys live and die on these projects. And when the projects dry up for a stretch, they could, they could go out of business. So I feel like I'm in a, this kind of middle zone, which I'm, I'm comfortable in. I think creativity still has to be, looked at. I think there's, we're coming on a time where we went through this new efficiency and programmatic buying, and we're just going to target the eyeballs and, and, and the machine's going to write the ads. And that's, that plays a part. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with it. But you come out of COVID, for instance, the noise we're going to hit, if all four major sports go live, if including college and this, you know, we, we're going to, we're going to drink from the fire hose of sports, live events, constant coverage, constant footage. Uh, then you got an election on top of that. Every bit of scrap of media is going to be bought and it's going to be a soapbox and it's going to be a message pounding at you. Is it really going to be 
the smart, efficient, mild-mannered programmatic buy that's going to cut through. And then you got every brand in America is going to try to salvage something out of 2020. And I, I'm hoping and think there's going to be a new belief in and renaissance and creativity. Creativity does not begin and end with the idea. Creativity in the strategic approach, the kinds of research we do, the kinds of insights we uncover, the channels we're using, where we're finding those eyeballs, how we're engaging them, and the creative idea. And I think, and then also creative ideas in, in AI. And, you know, and we started a branded AI division called Brave in, in, um, in uh, events and, and physical experiences and consumer experiences uh, and, uh, and, and product innovation and stuff. So it's not just in marketing com communications, but I think creativity, we used to remember that really good creativity actually was the most relevance for the least investment. That's what good creativity gets you. And, and a belief in that, a return to that is what I hope and anticipate. Uh, I've seen it happen in other recessions. Uh, we lived it in 08, you know, when the financial crisis hit, we, had, we, were, we were heavily leveraged in automotive and finance and both of those brands, Barclays and Audi, played it perfectly only to use the downturn to gain market share, to gain share of voice, to gain, you know, assets under management in the case of one and market share in the case of the other. Um, and just, I think, I think we're going to have to, as a marketing profession, maybe stop and consider, are we really expecting to go back to the same playbook of whatever it is, you know, digital buys that third parties on, on the web and long tail and your ad shows up in some white supremacist video or something. We still, we're going to go back to that when the world just was unhinged and, and, and it's noise level is this loud. I think creativity has got, I, that's my, that's, I'm betting on that. I always have been on that. And uh, you just need a couple of smart clients. You know, I'm not huge. I don't have to feed a beast of crazy growth. We've never managed the company for growth. We've managed it to, you know, make a fair dollar, but on, on great work and whatever that is. And however, however much that is, find those clients, like-minded clients and do that. So I'm optimistic, actually. I think people, the right clients are going to turn and go, you know what, we're going to have to look at this differently. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think creativity is going to be at a real premium. Yep. And I think that this is going to separate a lot of, you know, pretenders from contenders <laughs> and, uh, and smart people figure it out. Yep. yep. And that's sort of what you've been doing now for quite some time. Yeah, that's, you have to, right? You got to reinvent, you got to figure out. We always used to, you know, we always used to, what we say is do right, do right by our people and do right by our clients. And that means changing your approach, being flexible, listening when you'd rather not, <laughs> you know, uh, and reacting and doing. And so that's, that's kind of how we got ourselves. So once we're able to, you know, press play again off the pause button that we're all living now, looking ahead, what's something that you'd like to accomplish? Is there a particular ambition that you say, I want to grow into this area or that area? Um, you know, what is that first step towards the next 20 years look like? The two things that we have going on right now, actually three that I'm really excited about is um, one is this branded AI, you know, AI to this point in time, you think of the marketing, the CMO has created and crafted and cultivated a brand over decades, maybe, and, and cares and understands how this brand should act and behave. And then we hand it off to the IT folks to do the chat box that just is like, you know, generic and, 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 and speaks, it speaks in the universal language of robot. And how brands more and more are going to be artificial. 
And so how do you imbue, whether it's in an Audi vehicle or it's in a store or it's in, you know, or a chat by wherever there's a million places to show up. How do you make all that work and cultivation of a brand show up in AI? So this idea of branded AI uh, intelligence with artificial intelligence, with the brand ethos, with its values, with its personality, with its preferences and build that in. And I think there's so many places and opportunities for that in the, in the new world order. So that's a place we have a little fledgling thing going on right now, but I'm very encouraged about, you know, all the way down the other end of the, the stream is there's so much project work. We talked about it, like uh, big agencies, AORs, are they going away? What's the change? Are we dinosaurs? You know, to pivot to project work, but what we've done is with our internal production, we assigned a really seasoned high level creative leader to run it. So clients actually could go direct when they need the quick hit thing, the small fix, the short-term project and get creative built right into, you know, those videos or social media campaigns that they need right now. And so that's an interesting little play. I think that, and it's particularly where I am in Silicon Valley, you get a lot of requests from the tech companies that are just help me with this two month thing and then done. And so we think that's going to set us up uh, better for the future. And the other thing is media. We used to have media in house. We used to buy media uh, and eBay, for instance, was a client. Barclays was a client we bought a media for. Uh, and then we, you know, then we just it happened to be with our share of clients. They had big media houses uh, tied to them. And so we no longer had a media offering, but I think that's critical because it speaks to what we already said, which is, creativity and and that being in the driver's seat and it has to work side by side and in, in, in that cohesion and using media channels in the right way in a creative way getting back to that at that level i think that's a place where we want to keep pushing and see if we can get some clients to work with us uh, as their media and an awful lot of creativity is part of the media environment exactly, these days exactly exactly all the range yeah. of ideas and the packages you can buy and the things that can kind of you can shape around to buy it's incredible and then people are in different offices or in different parts of the country you're not getting that cohesion and that collaboration well this was great talking to you paul i really enjoyed it thank you so much i'm flattered and honored to be on the show you do amazing stuff and it's just fun and it's lovely to talk with you Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.